Let's open the Scriptures together to the Gospel of John, John chapter 6. As I mentioned in a note on church social this past week, I hope to pick up the series of sermons began last spring in John's Gospel. We've actually, over the few years, started in chapter 1 and made our way now to chapter 6. So in the month of May, May, June, I was able to preach to you on the first uh, 21 verses. We saw there how the Lord Jesus multiplied the bread and the fish in a miraculous way so that everyone was fed. We also saw Him walk on the water to meet His disciples. And then we pick up the account in verse 22, and I just want to alert you that the text is verse 22 through 35 but in our reading, we'll go all the way to 59 just to have the full, fuller context in our minds. Verse 22, on the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with His disciples, but that His disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor His disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And when they found Him on the other side of the sea, they said to Him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking Me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on Him God the Father has set His seal. Then they said to Him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to Him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to Me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in Me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen Me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? 
Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds in my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. As mentioned, the text for the preaching comes from John 6, verses 22 through 35. We won't read that again, but I would invite you to keep your Bibles open. Uh, it's a text that has a lot of layers to it, and so we're going to kind of work our way through it and hopefully understand it better together. Church of our Lord Jesus Christ, as we return to the Gospel of John, after a few months, we find ourselves indeed in the middle of a very lengthy, involved chapter in which there is a whole protracted discussion about bread. Now, it might be helpful just to recall what we learned in chapter 5. There's a pattern to John, the, the, the gospel writer's way of recording these things. In chapter 5, the pattern was this. First, there's a miracle at the opening of the chapter. Then, or as, as John calls it, a sign. Then there's a reaction to that sign from the crowds. And then there's a verbal dialogue between the, the crowds or the Jews and Jesus about what that sign means. Well, we've got the same thing going on here in chapter 6, just a bit more drawn out. Chapter 6 opens up with the recording of the miraculous sign of Jesus feeding a crowd of some 15,000 people. We know there were 5,000 men. You add in women and children, you can easily get to 15,000. He fed them with bread and fish. They reacted by thinking he was the prophet that Moses had written about, in other words, the Messiah, and then they were going to come and forcibly make him king, John tells us. And in response to that, Jesus eliminates that danger by sending his disciples across the lake by themselves. He isolates himself from the crowd and rejoins the disciples by walking on the water. 
And now in our text begins that dialogue part, that discussion part between Jesus and the crowds. And, and if you've, we, of course, we just read most of it together. Maybe you've read it earlier this week and you thought to yourself, there's something odd about this dialogue, isn't there? We've heard all kinds of conversations in our lives, so maybe you've heard a conversation like this where each party seems to be talking right past the other party. That's what it seems like here. The crowd asks one thing, Jesus responds on seemingly a different topic. Is Jesus really listening to the people? Does He understand them? Well, as always, yes, He does. In fact, He understands the people much better than they understand themselves, and He knows their true need. And so, through this dialogue, He leads the people patiently. He moves their eyes away from the miracle they had experienced yesterday, the miracle of the bread, to the miracle standing in front of them, the living bread which is given to satisfy their deepest hunger. And so I proclaim to you this word of the Lord. Come to Jesus, the bread of life. That's Christ's call to all of us. Come to Jesus, the bread of life. We need to get rid of obstacles, and then we can satisfy our hunger. Well, the oddness of this conversation between the crowd and Jesus isn't all one-sided, as if it's just from Jesus' side. The crowds also ask unusual questions sometimes. John tells us in verse 22 to 24 that the crowd figured out in the morning that Jesus had not left the night before with His disciples. They saw the disciples leave, but not Jesus, and they knew there had been no other boat there to take Jesus separately across the lake. But since Jesus is no longer there, they figure, well, He somehow went to rejoin His disciples, and so they get in the boats which had arrived in the morning. They take those boats across the sea to Capernaum. And of course, no one but the disciples had seen Jesus walk on the water because He had done that in the dark of night. But when the crowd finally catches up with Jesus on the other side of the lake in Capernaum, look at the question they ask. They ask Him, Rabbi, when did you come here? We would have expected them to ask, Rabbi, how did you get here? That's what they've been wondering. So it's a, an odd question to start this discussion. It's also a revealing question about what's going on in the minds of the people. They ask about a matter of time and timing. The day before, they had eaten their fill of bread and fish, which Jesus had miraculously produced, and they began to think on that occasion that it was the time of the prophet. It was the time that the Messiah had come to them, and they thought it was time to make Jesus king, even by force. It's time that Israel had its Messiah king. And you might remember from a few months ago that the kind of Messiah king the people were thinking about was very much in line of a king like the original David, 
King David, a, a military leader who would lead an uprising against Rome, their mortal enemy, who would restore the 12 tribes to their rightful land and give peace and prosperity to them in a, in a brand new age, a golden age of God's kingdom. This is what the people were thinking. As they come to Jesus in Capernaum, the crowds, they have their minds set on, on this world very much, on their land, on this life, on their success and shalom within the present time. Because they had seen Jesus do things in this world, like heal the sick and cast out demons. They'd seen Him produce bread and fish out of thin air. Surely this is the Messiah who will raise up Israel now to its glory again in the present. In other words, brothers and sisters, they were thinking about what Jesus could do for them physically in this temporal life, in this world, giving them health and riches and power over their enemies. That's the kind of Messiah they dreamed of. That's the kind of Messiah they thought they had there in Jesus. Can you relate to that? Do we sometimes think that Jesus came to give us a good life on earth? You ever caught yourself thinking that? Jesus replies to their question. Now notice, he doesn't answer their question about timing, but he steers them to the underlying issue, verse 26, and I translate uh, literally, amen, amen. I'll come back to that in a moment. I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs but because you ate your fill of the loaves, they had their mind on the bread. And that was an obstacle to faith. Though they had seen the signs Jesus had done, healing the sick and multiplying the loaves, they did not grasp their meaning. They were stuck on the signs. They thought the signs were so valuable. They wanted more signs instead of what the signs were pointing to. And so Jesus begins to shift their thinking away from the, the temporary bread they were craving to something far, far better. Verse 27, he says, Do not work for the food that perishes. That's the, the sign of the bread. But work for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the Father has set his seal. Now, Christ begins his answer with those two words, amen, amen. The ESV translates truly, truly, but again, you might recall that in the original, it's amen, amen, and that's unique in all of Scripture here in the Gospel of John that the Lord Jesus does this. He does it to highlight how absolutely true and how totally serious, it's the most serious thing in the world the words that he's about to say are. So, so pay attention. Pay double attention. Amen, amen. That's how he starts. And he wants to get across this point. Take your eyes off the bread, people. The bread which filled your stomachs. Take your eyes off that bread which only gives you a temporal fix and instead concentrate your attention on Jesus, the Son of Man, who gives you food for eternal life, not just a temporary satisfaction, 
Jesus also points out that God the Father had publicly set His seal upon Himself as His agent to bring eternal life. What does He mean by seal? Well, He could be pointing back to His baptism, to Jesus' own baptism, which was a public event. People, you, you saw what my Father did at my baptism, how He sent the Spirit to rest upon me in the form of a dove. And you've also seen the proof of who I am in the healings I've given and the exorcisms and the multiplying of the loaves. So don't look at the loaves. Don't look at the healings. Look at the healer. Look at me. I have come to give you everlasting life. Look to me, says Christ. But the people don't get it. Jesus, in verse 27, had spoken of a gift. The Son of Man will give you eternal life. You receive a gift. But all the people here is the earlier idea of work, working for food that endures to eternal life. And so they come with their question, verse 28, what must we do to be doing the works of God? That sounds a lot like the, the man who once approached Jesus on a different occasion who asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I know I have to do something. What, what, what is it? And isn't that the natural question of every human heart? What do I have to do to make God happy with me? What do I have to do to get into heaven, to, to live forever in paradise? Every, every person who's religious will ask those kinds of questions. And, and this is an obstacle. It's a huge obstacle for the crowds. They were thoroughly convinced that they had to live a certain way, a life of good works, doing all the things that God wanted them to do, and doing that would make them acceptable to God. Tell us, Jesus, what are the works of God we need to do? Could this be an obstacle for you, for me at times? Do we think along these lines, maybe inadvertently? On the one hand, many if not all of us will have been taught all of our lives that we are saved by faith alone. But then we hear the various commands in Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament commands like love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, love your neighbor as yourself. And, and so we, we set out to obey those commands and we're busy in our life trying to do what God wants us to do. And somewhere along the way, there's a little tweak in our thinking maybe. We start to think that the obedience we render to God, the, the good works we do, is what keeps God happy with us. So we know faith brings us into salvation. Faith in Jesus puts us into God's family. But we start thinking down low in our hearts. It's our good works which keep us in the family of God. And if I fail to do good works sufficiently, I could lose God's approval. I, I could lose God's favor. I could lose my place in God's family. Have those 
thoughts ever crossed your mind? If they have, that's an obstacle you need to throw as far away from yourself as you can. For listen to how the Lord responds to their question about work. Verse 29, this is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. That's the work you've got to do. Believe. You might as well put the word work within quotation marks because believing really isn't work, is it? Jesus is saying, your good works, they've got nothing to do with your standing before God. Brothers and sisters, eternal life is a gift. It's a gift that Jesus Christ hands out. He gives it to you. He bestows it upon you and be unearned. And you and I, we receive this gift simply by faith by believing that Jesus Christ came to this earth to suffer and die for the forgiveness of all of our sins. By faith in Jesus, we receive salvation. We receive eternal life. And once you have received that gift, it can never be taken away. Never. And of course, once you've got the gift, you, you want to live thankfully to God. You want to live a life of good works. And of course, you and I, we want to turn away from the very sin from which we've been saved by Jesus. But please, brothers and sisters, never, ever, ever think that God will continue to love you or God will continue to accept you or God will continue to approve of you because of your good deeds. Oh, God loves you and me. God accepts you. God approves of you fully, completely, and forever in Christ. Because you belong to Christ by faith. Because you have eaten by faith the true bread from heaven. Nothing you or I do could ever add to or take away from the Father's love for us in Jesus. It's because we're in Jesus. That's why we're acceptable. Believe in me. It's all you have to do, says Jesus to the crowds. But the crowds, now they start to show their true colors. They challenge Jesus to that saying of His. They come back with verse, uh, verse 30. Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform, Jesus? It's hard to understand the, the level of their audacity, isn't it? I mean, think of what they had experienced the day before. They had experienced, they had seen more astonishing miracles or signs than most believers before them in history or even after them. They had seen the sick healed, the demon-possessed set free, just by a word of Jesus, people were healed at a distance at times. This crowd themselves had eaten of the multiplied fish and bread 
where Jesus had fed thousands of people, and now they dare ask him, demand of him a sign? They are cut from the same cloth as the Israelites of Psalm 78. We're cut from the same cloth too by nature, that stubborn streak. They point to Moses who gave their forefathers manna in the desert, bread from heaven, and they challenge Jesus. You say, Jesus, that you give us food that endures to eternal life. Well, not even Moses gave us gave our, our forefathers that kind of food. Are you saying that you're greater than Moses? Prove it. The proof is staring them in the face, isn't it? But they refuse to see it. They demand more proof yet. The signs you've already done, not enough. Do you see, brothers and sisters, how this too is an obstacle to salvation they have to get rid of if they're going to come to Jesus? They want to see greater, undeniable proof before they believe. And is that not the same struggle that, or at least response that, that many in the world have today? They demand proof before they'll accept Christianity. Proof that completely satisfies their minds, their, their logic, their reason, but they ignore the proof that God has already laid out. The proof found in creation in the order of the world, the proof in the existence of the Bible, a unique book in the history of the world where the, the Word of God is in there and it's powerful and it's been saving people for thousands upon thousands of years. They ignore the sending of God's Son to die on the cross. They ignore the many witnesses that there are to His resurrection. They ignore the fact that the kingdom of heaven has been spreading around the world ever since Pentecost. They ignore the presence of His church and believers in every nation on earth. Like the crowds in our text who saw all these miracles, many people today dismiss these acts of God and say, that's not enough. Show us a real sign, then we'll believe. It's the heart of unbelief talking. Sometimes people who grow up in a Christian family, grow up in the church, have this kind of obstacle in their hearts as well, demanding all their questions about God and sin, about hell and heaven and how that all works and how God could do certain things. They want all their questions, A to Z, to be answered to their satisfaction before they will believe. Well, brothers and sisters, you'll never get there. That's an obstacle. You have to throw that out and you have to accept what God has given. God has never promised that we'd all know everything. God has never promised that we would all understand His work and His ways and we have no right to expect that either. God's ways are, are higher than our ways, says the Bible. And it's because He is creator and we are creatures. God is infinite. We are finite. Of course, we're not going to be able to grasp everything about God or, or the way He does things. He's the potter. We are the clay. So we don't challenge God to prove Himself, but we accept from God what He holds out to us. 
And He has made it crystal clear that we sinners can find salvation, the full forgiveness of our sins in His Son, Jesus Christ, and only in Christ. The ache of our souls. Doesn't your soul have an ache? The ache of our souls for peace. Peace with the Almighty. Fellowship with our Creator. Fellowship with our fellow beings. That can only be found in Jesus, who is the true bread of life. Accept that, beloved, in true faith. And then you will begin to see You can't see to believe. You need to believe. Then you can see. Come to Jesus, the bread of life, and satisfy the hunger of your soul. For Jesus presses on with his message for the crowd. He leads them bit by bit to see them as their Savior. In reply to their reference to the bread Moses had provided, In the wilderness, Jesus says, verse 32, Amen, amen, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you, notice the present tense, gives you the true bread from heaven. Jesus offers a double contrast there. First, it's the the Father in heaven over against Moses. Now, the Jews thought, very highly of Moses. He was the great prophet of God, but Jesus reminds them that just as um, honorable as Moses is, he's just a servant, and he's not the real giver of that ancient bread in the wilderness. That giver was the Father, was God. But then comes a stronger contrast. That bread in the desert, that manna, that was not the true bread from heaven, But in fact, the true bread from heaven is, present tense, is being given to you right now by my Father. And notice how Jesus brings in that part as well. He he speaks of God as my Father. That's the first time in this dialogue he does that. The Jews had spoken of our fathers eating manna in the desert, but now Jesus, he intensifies his claims. He says, it was not Moses who gave you manna, But it was God, and that God is my Father, and my Father is in fact giving you something superior. He's giving you true bread from heaven right now as we speak. In me. That's the implication. And then Jesus spells that out in verse 33. For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. I'm the bread from God. Of course, Jesus is using a metaphor to describe himself. He is not a physical loaf of bread. We are not to eat Jesus in any physical sense, but he means we are to believe in Jesus. Verse 29. But why does Jesus call himself the true Bread. What does he mean by that? And, and why is the manna in the desert not true bread? Was the manna somehow fake bread? Was the manna just an illusion? Well, we know that the manna was legitimate bread 
of its own kind. It was a, a gift of God which provided very real nourishment for God's people in the desert. He's not, Jesus is not trying to disparage manna as if manna is lousy and, and He, the true bread, is, is the only good thing. But He's trying to get across the difference between true and what only points to the true. And for that, we have to remember what John, the gospel writer, said in the first chapter of his book. He says, the law was given through Moses, here comes, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Was there no grace and truth in the law of Moses? Of course there was. What John is saying is that what God gave in the law of Moses were signs ceremonies and sacrifices and feasts. All of these were pointers that spoke of a future reality that the people were waiting for. They outlined a coming salvation in a future Messiah. They were not yet the truth. They were just pointers to the truth. Elsewhere, the Bible uses the word shadows. All that God gave in the ministry of Moses were shadows, but now God gives in the person of Jesus of Nazareth the substance, the real McCoy, or as John describes it, that's why he uses the word, the truth. This is the reality, the real deal. The manna, that was a temporary gift, a good gift, pointing ahead to the actual reality of true bad bread, who would come down from heaven to give life to the world, and that bread is Jesus Christ. The manna was a pointer. Jesus is the real, the true bread. So don't get stuck on the manna. And notice the difference, too, between the two breads. Manna was given in the days of Moses to give sustenance, life to the people of Israel. But look what Jesus says about himself, the true bread. He says the true bread, verse 33, comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. To the world. God so loved the world. Not just the Jews. All the Gentiles are in view here, whatever nation or tribe or tongue, the bread of life is for everybody. He follows that up with a, the climactic claim in verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. It's a, it's a wide open invitation, beloved. To everybody sitting in the pew this morning, to everybody watching online, to everybody from everywhere, from every station of life, no matter your skin color, no matter your background, your language, no matter your past, what you've done in your life, no matter your mistakes, no matter your regrets, no matter your crimes or your sins, if you come to Jesus Christ, Meaning, if you put your trust in Jesus as the one who died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins, the whole catalog of your sins, you will receive everlasting life and nobody can take it from you. That's what he's saying. That's the gospel. 
Jesus talks in verse 35 about hungering and thirsting. That too is said metaphorically. But make no mistake, the metaphor is real. It's talking about a reality, and we know that reality, don't we? Doesn't your soul hunger? Doesn't your soul thirst for something more than what we can experience in this life? Is your heart restless within you? Every human heart knows that feeling. In the beginning, God created our hearts to be in fellowship with Him, to have a relationship of peace and harmony with our Maker. But ever since we turned our backs on God in the Garden of Eden, we have not known peace. Humans have not known harmony. Our hearts have been restless. Our souls have been hungry. And nothing we, we try can satisfy our souls until now, until Jesus, the bread of life. So accept Him, the one who makes you right with your Maker, and you will find your heart at rest with God. Believe in Jesus Christ as the one who gives you a place in God's family, who gives you life everlasting, and your soul, it will hunger no more. You can't earn this bread. You can't even work to keep this benefit. All you can do is eat by faith today, and every day the true bread from heaven, which makes all who hunger whole eat that bread. Amen.